Days booby-trapped with animosity, reeking of gunpowder's acrid bite. When the bass-heavy beat of police brutality makes it so you can't breathe. And kids begin the new school year with face masks and bulletproof backpacks. When homegrown terrorists keep getting younger and younger and hate speech grows louder and louder. When those who perish from shootings, stabbings, beatings, lynchings, overdose, suicide, and disease are reduced to body bag hashtags on social media. So heavy these tombstone days when chaos holds sway and pallbearers bear the weight of still another coffin across the worn, cobbled streets of our eyes. In between it all, moments of dignity, a kind word, a shared kiss, a prayer for peace, teaching a child to say please and thank you. Here, contentment is revealed. Everything is radiant between the hates. to the Social Yet Distance podcast. My name is Jack Varnell. You can find me around the web as the Emotional Orphan. I'm the co-founder and the co-host of the Social Yet Distance podcast, and I want to take a minute to thank you for coming by. The magic might have been inside of us all along. Are you serious? Yeah. I told you, Michelle, I love you. I'll do anything for you. Hello and welcome, social yet distance listeners. Today it is my very great pleasure to be joined by the mighty Jane Byrne a poet and artist who may even have the edge on John Dorsey and myself in terms of the sheer creative output. So Jane's pamphlets include Fat Around the Middle, which is by a talking pen, came out in 2015, and Tongues of Fire from Blacklight Engine Room Press 2016. Her collections are Nothing More To It Than Bubbles, Indigo Dreams 2016, This Game of Strangers, Weird Harvest Press 2017, co-written with Bob Begri, One of These Dead Places, Culture Matters 2017, Fleet, which is also Weird Harvest Press 2018, Remnant, Nice Forks and Spoon Press 2019, again written with Bob Begri, and The Astonishing, one of my favourite collections of all time, Yantan Tether, Indigo Dreams 2020. Um, her poems have been nominated for the Forward and the Pushcart Prize, and she's praised in a frankly amazing number of poetry competitions. How many is it now? Like 47, 48? Something like that. I stopped counting when it was about 45 or something, so I don't know. I stopped counting. <laughs> it's 
I've, I've been kind of counting along with you and I think we might we might be like now up to like 40, 48, 49, maybe even 50. The Social Yet Distanced is sponsored by The Emotional Orphan in the form of production support. We hope that you'll continue to help us grow the show through the purchase of merchandise at Redbubble or some books or broadsides at Gum Road. You can find links on our anchor page and on all our social media. Thanks. So Jane is um, a fellow associate editor at Culture Matters, where we worked on Witches, Warriors and Workers, an anthology of contemporary women's poetry. And she lives in an eco-friendly house in Northumberland in a little wooden cottage. It's gorgeous. Um, many of her poems are about her adoration of language and how it connects her to the many passions and parts of her life. She is working class, a wife, a mother, bisexual, a poet, an artist, and a maker. She's also a late diagnosed autistic person. Um, this diagnosis, she says, has helped everything to finally make sense. She is currently doing an MA in writing poetry at Newcastle University, and her next collection, Be Feared, is due out in November from Nine Arches Press. She also plays a rather fabulous ukulele. Welcome, Jay. Hello, Fran. Thank you for having me here. It's great. To see you. we've both got our dogs in the background as well today so it's sort of like I don't know if you can hear mine snoring currently <laughs> can you hear him every so often there's like this little doggy sound it's so sweet Manny doesn't make such good noises he's snoring like a chainsaw right next to me at the moment <laughs> I assume yeah so we'll probably hear Manny later Manny may also come in they're doing their own interview through the medium of interpretive bodily yeah. noises yeah so I want to dive right in um, by asking if you could tell us something about your forthcoming collection, particularly the significance of the title Be Feared, which I actually think should be our motto as generally unacceptable working class women poets. <laughs> I wonder if, if you just have a sense in your recent work of having sort of found that rage or a sense of moving towards a more unapologetically angry voice. Yes. Um... Well, the title, uh, Be Feared, it actually comes from um, a really small poem in the collection. It sort of appears midway in. Um, it's such a tiny poem, but it was an absolute catalyst for putting this whole collection together. Um, you know, when you think back and you think, wow, I think it was writing that little poem that really began this book. Um, it was, uh, it, I mean, usually in a collection, the, the title poem shares the same title as one of the poems in there, but in this case, it doesn't. The, the words be feared are buried in this very small but very important poem. Um, and I wrote it while I was still working at the supermarket, which I did for five years. But I was beginning to acknowledge my inability to sustain myself mentally there for much longer. So this poem was part of my realization that I had to do something about myself, the way I felt, what was happening to me inside my life. And some months after writing this poem, I found the courage to leave that job, seek a final answer to my health issues. And at the age of 48, find the courage and the self-belief to use my art and poetry to scratch out a living. It also became clear to me how important those words, be feared, were to me 
and my new courage in writing. Those words began to shape me and my writing afresh. I didn't find a new voice. I found new layers of it that before I hadn't quite known how to access, though those layers were buried there, screaming for air. I wanted to express my gratitude and passion for this Catalyst poem, and it seemed that there could be no other title for this book. Um, I've lived in the Northeast for 29 years now, and it's pretty much absorbed me as I have absorbed it, and I'd find it hard now to imagine living anywhere else. Um, feared is a slang word here. It's a dialect word here. You know, she's feared of him. Oh, I'm feared of exams. You know, it's it's used like that, but it just seems like an absolutely immense word. I am not. I'm not just afraid. I'm feared. I'm feared. What a strong word. Be feared. Be afraid, because life has so much that will make you afraid. So so be feared of it. Um, I just find. The word just absolutely swells my insides out when I hear it, you know, be feared, because it's also a very ferocious word. I want to turn it round and I want to say to the poetry world, be feared of me because I'm coming. I am coming, be feared. And I want other people to be able to feel the same as well, you know, be feared. So it's a positive and a negative as well. And I love the double-edged sort of play on that title so so in the end I thought there could be no other title for this collection and the rest of it sort of span off from that um, I also want to acknowledge that this little poem uses the 821 form which was invented a few years ago by fellow northeast working class poet Lisa Matthews she came up with this form herself um, and it's a wonderful wonderful form um, so I'll just read that poem now. Fantastic. It's called This is a Frankenstein Night. Rebuild the monsters in your life. Finish work in the dark. Pace the salted car park to where you parked. You spent the shift smiling, cramping on unpassed wind. The waistband bites. Check behind, let go of painful blusters as you waggle across the stiffened grit. Turn to unlock the car, be feared that someone might grab your back, pull out your lungs, crack your spine, ground you like a broken doll. Sit at the wheel and scream your breath. Press a thumbnail to the opposite hand and scrape a beautiful traipse of pain. Mourn the lack of spectacle. Too much night for birds. Snatch what you can from the headlights fan. Stretch your voice to the radio. Make your throat a wishing well. Oh, thank you so much for reading. That's an amazing poem. Love that poem. It's small, but it's so it's so mighty that you can feel there's like that intensity. It's so packed tight together. You can feel that knot in your stomach that you were talking yeah. about that kind of, yeah, that sort of contracted tight feeling that wants that also wants to expand to kind of encompass everything. 
and it's it's so wonderful that you're also you're honoring an invented form from another wonderful working class woman because that's yes. that's, that's how we raise important. each other it is mm. it's how we raise each other up definitely it's amazing thank you so much for sharing that um, I don't want this to be like, you know, the Ray, Fran and Jane's rage cast, but I do want to talk a little bit about, about anger and about um, your experiences, both within kind of prize and publication culture, which I know we've talked a bit about before, and also within academia and the MA programme. And I wonder if you feel that poetry still has a problem with anger, like especially with women's anger. I very often read like contemporary lyric collections come out and they're always being touted as being really edgy or angry or feminist. And I have to say that when I pick most of them and read them, I find them obvious and snarky and ultimately quite well behaved. And this doesn't speak to rage as I experience it or understand it. And I think, you know, as working class women, do you think there's something about our anger that's considered probably not quite nice or acceptable for human consumption? And does that colour how we're treated so within the space of the university and within wider publication culture. Yeah, I mean, rage is a difficult thing to articulate. Um, I mean, I can only speak for myself with any certainty, but I do know that each of my poems is some kind of bonfire, some kind of exorcism, sometimes a quiet one, sometimes mm. a loud one, but it's an exorcism all the same. I know my work can be interpreted as stressful for the reader, not an easy read. I'm a literary vandal. <laughs> I am throwing my poems through an invisible window. They are wrecking balls flung at internal and external walls. When I am writing, I do worry they are not considering the reader. I do not mean this in any way derogatively towards the reader or I'm not considering how the reader might feel when they're suddenly ambushed by one of my poems. Sometimes I ambush myself when I'm writing them. My brain makes these enormous jumps inside and in my own neurodivergent way, I just assume that everyone has made the leap with me. I'm the same when I'm holding a conversation. I start to talk about something and just assume the listener knows what I'm referring to. I do try to be conscious of this, but it often gets forgotten in the euphoric rush of creation. Some might say that this is a negative, but what it does lead to is incredibly honest, unflinching poems that do not balk at any subject matter. And this has led to many people writing to say that they identify with and appreciate this honesty, that it resonates with them, that it gives them the courage to do the same, to maybe be a bit more Jane Byrne. <laughs> <laughs> I come with too many spikes, so you cannot sit next to me comfortably. If people give me the time, they often begin to respect me just based on the strength of my work. I'm often tongue-tied, shy or worried that I'm talking too much about the wrong thing face to face. It's my poetry that offers me the fluency that I am lacking in real life. My anger comes in strange shapes and I guess there has been no defining what kind of poet I am. I wouldn't be able to define myself really. I'm just a poet. I just am and I will not fit easily anywhere 
I am not simply a nature poet, an eco-poet, a feminist poet, a woman poet, a working class poet, an LGBTQIA plus poet, a historical poet, a myth and legend poet, a political poet. Therefore, I am tough to define. Whose bookshelf do I sit on? Do people need to be able to put a poet in a box to quantify them, so to speak? I am very grateful to all the other presses who I have worked with for giving me a place, but especially now with Jane Kamein at Nine Arches, because I feel with this next book, I'm taking great leaps into the unknown. And the fact that she has faith in me does mean a great deal. I don't know if that answers the question at all. <laughs> I think, yeah, no, it does. I think... It's, it's about that shape, that sense of being undefined and not being an easy fit within any of these kind of ridiculous ready-made categories of belonging. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of people out there, particularly, I think, you know, sort of people from working class backgrounds who identify with that, whose poetry isn't maybe working class in that kind of very obvious sort yeah. of, yeah, slightly maybe. I don't want to sort of like, you know, I don't want to be disparaging but in a very, that, that's your theme, Every, you're just writing about grot and poverty, that's all you're allowed to write about. Yeah, that's, and, and I just think, can I not just be working class and I write? Mm. You know, yes. does, the expect, does, does the expectation have to be that I'm only going to write about, you know, being down the mine or, or, or starving in an attic or, or something, which is great, you know, I've written about those things, but... It's not what defines me. I just happen to be working class and I happen to write poetry. And, and that should be enough without expecting a working class poet to be anything. You know, we don't have to be gritty if we don't want to be. We don't, you know, we can write about whatever we please. We have the same access to subject matter as any poet. Mm. You know, we are not defined by what we write. We write because we write and we are working class. Um, which is coming out a bit gobbledygook, but I know what I mean. Um, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. I do know what you mean. And just the desire to be defined and, and for people to take you seriously enough that they afford poets that status as a primary kind of identity or primary category and not try to sort of take, well, she's a great woman poet or she's a great feminist yeah. poet or she's like, can I not just be a good poet? I, Don't I, just try and, be, yeah. Yeah, I just want to be a good poet. That's what I want to be, a good poet. Mm -hmm. And I don't want any limits placed on any subject matter I write about, you know. Mm -hmm. that's, what, that's what I want from poetry. I want to be a poet and I write about anything I want to write about at any time, any place, anywhere. So... So, to anyone that says <laughs> otherwise, basically, just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is also how I feel after having sort of I don't know that you, I don't know if you feel similarly that there are sometimes you, people are trying to sort of shoehorn you into a particular direction you know you go, go over here and stand next to the other you know stand next to the yeah. other queer poets go over here and stand stand next to the other feminist poets or go over here and stand next to the other kind of neurodiverse poets and you're like well yeah. can I just can I not just be can me? I just be me I just want to be me yeah that's, yeah that's what I want to be not not defined by anything I just want to be a poet and that's it 
and hopefully respected as well that would be nice <laughs> yeah that would be awesome I feel like you know it doesn't it doesn't often happen in life though does it so I'm not sure it's ever gonna happen in poetry I think the point that you made about people contacting you and saying that your work resonated with them I think there's a difference definitely between the audience who is finding your work and who is getting something out of it and who has this very um, intimate, passionate and engaged kind of dialogue with you in your writing and with the poetry biz out there who are maybe more standoffish and don't know quite what to do with the likes of us. Yeah, that's true. I don't think many people currently know what to do with me at all. But hopefully they'll just accept you on a level with who you are. That's... Mm -hmm. That's, that's what I always hope for, you know, to, to be, like I say, to be equal with my peers, to be offered the same opportunities as my peers, um, and to be able to open the same doors as my peers. So hopefully, fingers crossed, I'll get there. I won't stop trying and I won't stop banging on the doors. It's a shame we have to bang on them, but you do, you do. Yeah. You do. And I suppose that's why your work takes on a, a, a scary edge as well, is because you are fighting. Mm -hmm. You know, you fought your whole life against, you know, you know the, the, the opportunities you haven't had or the problems you've faced, you know, your situation. You, you feel like you fought from the day you were born. Mm -hmm. And it's a hard thing to shake, the amount of fight that comes out of you and, and you know, and then passes into the work you write, you know. Um, so that, I think that's why people might find it hard to identify sometimes with it is they wonder why you're fighting so hard or shouting so loud and it's, it's just it's what I know it's what I've always had to do and I'm still having to do it and I'd like to come to a time maybe it's imaginary but it might be a time out there I don't have to do it yeah and, and I can just relax and be a poet and there is no edge, there's no blade against anything I do. It's just poetry and me is where I dream of ending up. That sounds wonderful. It's kind of that's yes. like a good perfect dream. But yeah. Oh. We've got a ways to go, right? But you you deserve to be there, definitely. I'm trying. No one can ever say she didn't try. Like. I think that'll be my epitaph. No one can ever say. <laughs> didn't try <laughs> but this is it I think you know that there are all there's already like a queue of people that stretches halfway around the block who are willing to kind of do you down and cut you out and the only way you are complicit in your own failure is by not trying you don't want to give them the satisfaction of giving up yeah yeah so yeah I, I kind of wanted to ask about the sort of nuts and bolts talking about being taken seriously as, as an artist I wanted to talk a bit about um, the nuts and bolts of your creative process and about just your your absolute facility and your dexterity and precision with language. Because I think, you know, one of my favourite descriptions of your work is that your writing is like pyrotechnic. So I really see that I would see your poems as controlled explosions because there's a discipline and craft there that I think is often, you know, when people talk about our work and I talk about being damned with faint praise, because people often say, you know, oh, it's very edgy, it's very raw, it's very, I'm like, well, no, it isn't, actually. It's it's highly disciplined and it's highly controlled yeah. and it's crafted. You know, it's not, I'm not some sort of like idiot savant sitting in a ditch poking berries at my nose, scratching my poems out with a stick. 
and I don't know what you're trying to kind of imply or how you're trying to position me when you say those things and I think with working class women like the the kind of like the really difficult intellectual work that we do is often overlooked or it's unattended to because I think there's this fiction that to be able to write with intelligence and wit and purpose you have to have been through the system but we're not learning it from the system nine times out of ten we're learning the poetry from elsewhere that there are other sources other than you know a PhD or an MA program or school because I don't you know I think both you and I found school quite adversarial and awful in a variety mm. of ways mm -hmm. um yeah. so yeah I wonder if you could just tell us something about how poetry came into your life and about your creative process for writing and 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 making the poem yeah sure um I mean I know I'm probably not a poet for everyone if you put me against streamlined minimalism and there's nothing wrong with streamlined minimalism, don't get me wrong, they could say I appear Latinate. And that mm. is almost said to me as a criticism that I'm too Latinate. Um, and it, it's not, it's just that I'm different. I'm different. I'm not the same writer as somebody else. And in a way it's, it's, it's mad to compare writers because we're all so unique we've all got you know our own voice if, if we're not like someone else I think that's great mm. we're not supposed to be like everyone else we're supposed to be different we're individual people um I mean words fascinate me so much just individual words you know that they're, they're different levels of meaning their etymology the way you can extend meanings with the correct word choice for your idea um I love dialect and the way words have changed through history. And there's such a massive stock of words. Um, and if, if, if that was in the mouth of, you know, a, 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 a celebrated academic, they would celebrate it without question. In my mouth, it's a perplexity with a mm -hmm. hint of, should she really be doing this on the side of it? Um, I believe if I was, you know, a professor or something, nobody would question uh, the, the way that my words are Latinate mm. and you've only got to read you know a critical essay on poetry and it's full of like bazonking massive huge words <laughs> that's brilliant you know and you think wowza look at all these glorious words I love mm. it um, but in your mouth it somehow translates to being viewed differently and it should be viewed exactly the same um, I'm just somebody who has an incredible magpie word store that gets added to 50, 60 times a day. Um, if I come across a word I don't know in a piece of literature, I look it up and I learn it. Mm. Um, and this is a part of the joy of poetry and, and, and literature. That is a joy for me if, if you come across those things and it fires me up. Um, you know, um, and you're not done with learning. You're never done with learning. Um, and, to, you know, to sometimes level at me a criticism that I'm not being accessible because I'm using words someone has to look up. And I think, well, why? Why is that inaccessible? When you have, you know, if you're reading a poetry book and you need to know what a word means, look it up. 
because you can't possibly carry the meaning of every single word in the world in your head. No one does that. Everybody has to look words up. Um, And I find that an interesting aspect to somebody's poetry or writing. You know, I'm interested in in why do you think they've chosen that word? What are they saying with it? You know, mm. and you, you were meant to look at, at yeah. poems for all the different layers of meaning in them. You know, from your first reading to the 10th reading or whatever, by the time you start to break it up in a sort of, for, for want of a better word, academic process of looking at a poem. You know, they're the kind of things that in a critical essay book would be lauded. It'd be great. Look at what this poet is doing with, you know, why is why she used this one particular word? Why debitage and not just dirt? You know, you've got, and then you spin off and do all these different things that debitage can represent within the metaphor, Mm. you know, and I could go on forever about it. And I do have to defend myself on, Mm. on many occasions for this. Um, and the last person to ever be an access- inaccessible is me, <laughs> who fights tooth and nail for accessibility. But I also fight for the right to use whatever word I please as well. I'm getting quite heated about that no. because I don't think people can tell you how you should be writing or why you should be writing or what words you should be using. Um, you know, you, you've it's difficult because you know you hear feedback and, and you do accept there are things in there of great value and yes. you know you, you can apply that to your work but you can't fundamentally change who you are and someone should not fundamentally want to change who you are as a writer you know no one's going to make me a minimalist poet I'm not going to maybe mm. I will maybe I will write a poem with three words on the page one day and I'll have an I have a brilliant explanation for why I've done that if I ever do that um because what I'm what I'm learning grows every single day and when I started my MA I did joke to friends that by the time I left I'd write poems so distilled they'd be invisible on the page and sound like fridge (laughs) noise (laughs) because you do change um you know, I'm measuring each word so much more acutely than I ever was before. Um, I'm considering the why of everything, you know, why that form, why that line break, why that caesura, you know, things like, and this constant flux is still playing with the beefier collection because mm. I'm still editing away madly. I'm tucking, nipping, sweeping through it because every day I feel like I've got a new broom to sweep with. Everything you learn is a new tool, is more power to you, is more power to yourself, which is ultimately why I wanted to do the MA because Mm. it was also, it felt like, you know, to to exclude me from academia, Mm. I wasn't an academic poet. I could write the cleverest thing in the world and not be considered Mm -hmm. an academic poet. So and I felt like it was just another door I have to knock on and break mm-hmm. down, which is what I'm now doing. I want to find out what's behind that golden door. Um, and actually, it's a world I can compete in as an equal yes. um, and do compete in as an equal. But I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't broken, got through that door. Mm. And when I have those letters after my name, they're going to have to say I'm an academic poet. And that means a lot to someone who started off 
you know, like one of my poems mm. in one of these dead places, someone who thought she was thick as pig shit yeah. when she was young and had no idea what was in there. And, and for me to have got that far, for me to have got into academia is, is a wonderful thing. So when people used to say to me, why are you doing it? You don't need to do it. Yes, mm. I do yes. need to do you it. Do. And hopefully, God willing, or finances willing, or some kind of miracle willing, I'll be able to go on and do a PhD mm. as well. Um, because once I've completed the, the barrier of MA, there'll be another door that mm -hmm. I want to go through because I'm like that anyway. I must yeah. be very ambitious in my own way that there is always a door above me that I want to go through. Mm. And just curious as well. And just, you know, not having had access to that world and not having had the opportunity, I think, to be kind of complacent about it or to be habituated with it, because it's not always there whenever you want it. And nobody in your family has been through that door before you. Like, so because when I went, I was the only person as well. And it was there's nobody to tell me what to do or how it'll be or what it's like. And so the only way you know is to go. And so you go and I love what you were saying, talking about, you know, how every day you have a new broom to sweep with and there's a new tool in the toolbox because that's how it should be. And all the, all the rest of the stuff, all the politics, all the nastiness, all the you don't belong here, which is a big thing in academia. It's a huge thing. And people still aren't, they're not even talking, they're still not talking about it, you know, at an institutional level. There's never been any kind of like, you know, conversation about why working class women feel so unwelcome and so unloved in those spaces. But aside from all of that, the learning and the having that knowledge and the being able to apply it to your own work is priceless. And it's something yeah. they can't take that away. Whatever else they do to you, whatever else they, they cannot take that away from you. <laughs> And I will call myself doctor like forever. And it will be brilliant when you can be, we can be Dr. Byrne and Dr. Locke together. That will be yeah. the most amazing if, thing. If I ever achieve that, I'm probably going to probably paint it on my forehead. I'll probably paint it backwards <laughs> knowing me and make a mistake. Um, but it, it's all about earning respect as well. Cause I know if someone first meets me, they don't know what's coming, you know, mm. I sound terrible. I look terrible you know, I'm different I am different mm, you're different um and I cannot I call it academic speak I shouldn't I keep trying mm. to think of another term for it when when it comes to just speaking in mm. a group I do feel shy and I do and I, and I feel like I, I can't but what I keep thinking is have courage stick mm. with it and then when you read your poems then you can gain their respect because yes. if then they will see who you are and what you're capable of if you can't hold your own in a room of peers, you know. And, you know, it's like me using the word caesura in this interview. I thought, oh, my goodness. I feel <laughs> bad. Wow, look at that. I know the word caesura now. I've just have said there's a natural break in the line before I started my MA. But now mm. I can say there's a caesura. So I'm still learning how to function in that environment. Mm. So... I still have to leave it up to the poems. And I think, fair enough, I want to leave it up to the poems because yeah. that's where I am fluent. That's where I am confident. That's where I start to fly. That's where I do everything mm -hmm. I want to do. 
and it doesn't matter it shouldn't matter how you function outside of your poem people should accept you for who, who you are um, and not make any judgments because you have a silly voice or you make mistakes or you forget what you're talking about and the word you wanted has gone out with your head and all these <laughs> things that happen um, I just think read the poems and um, let them speak for me but wanting to move away from that and get back to talking about your work, I wanted to talk about um, the importance of the natural or the animal world in your poems, um, especially in, in Fleet and in Yantan Tether, which I've been doing with my students at poetry school on my last oh. course, writing the animal oh. other. And because there's such, there's all this, there's a tremendous empathetic and it's almost a prayerful attention to the animal other in these poems is extremely rare in a, what a, in a lot of what gets called contemporary nature writing, where I think nature is often the backdrop for human emotion and the animal is a cipher for human experience, particularly, I mean, we did a lot of Ted, Ted Hughes gets called an amazing nature poet. And I'm just thinking, no, the, the subject of all Ted Hughes' poems is Ted Hughes. Um, it, it's not the animal. I, I feel like the animal is just a vehicle through which Ted yeah. Hughes' Ted Hughes-ness flows and it's actually very annoying. Um, but when I read your work, um, I'm reminded of something that the brilliant Australian poet Coral Hull said about when she's writing about zoo animals. And she says, it's a great task to describe another life form with accuracy and compassion. And that sense of um, attention and accuracy being the measure of compassion. And that's just something that is it's just so grounded and so integral to your work. I wonder if you could Tell us something about your approach to writing the natural world and about the importance of nature and animals in your work more broadly, because I know they're also in some of your fantastic artwork as well. Yeah, feature. I think when you're looking, I mean, I, I have on occasion used them as, as a sort of metaphor, you know, it's where, but I wouldn't count it as a nature poem, you know, with, with yeah. the poem Bear, 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 which I used to translate feelings about the pandemic, imagining myself as a great rambunctious bear. Um, but it wasn't a nature poem. Mm. The animal was just an image. Um, mm. But if I'm writing about the animal itself, you know, purely about the animal, then it becomes, you know, just, just a matter, first of all, of, of watching animals um and spend if you spend a lot of time with animals you realize how absolutely utterly unconnected and separate they are from us mm. you know as human beings um so i think that that is the first standpoint when you're writing about them if, if you just you know if, if you set yourself exercises where you've got to write about that dog but you can't put any human emotions on them or human expressions on them, you know, they are completely and utterly separate from you. And that starts, then that will help you imagine, you've, you've got to use your imagination to imagine their lives because you aren't them, you'll never be them. You know, I don't know what it's going to be like to fly um, or peck things or dig, you know, or dig a hole with my front feet or, you know, all these funny little mm -hmm. things like that. I don't know what it's like to live outside in the dead of winter you know I'm, I'm you know and all these little things about them um you do have to imagine how it is to be them um and you keep having to sort of step back and remove yourself from them because you, you 
you, you do have a tendency to want to sort of translate yourself through them. I think it's mm. only natural. I think we just do it as humans. We see a cup and it becomes, you know, a metaphor for, I don't know, the fact that we fail to get around the shops without crying, you know, mm. and, and things like that. Um, it, it's how we are as human beings. It's, it's what we do, especially as poets. Mm. We're always looking for a completely different dimension in the everyday things. And there are some wonderful dimensions in the everyday, mm. you know. And, I mean, one of the poems I'm going to read later is exactly about finding like massive dimensions in the most minimal, menial things sort of thing um but the nature poetry it they don't use your voice you know they have a different voice I don't know what that voice is I can only try and imagine through their sort of physical actions mm. what their voice might be you know whether they're a very quick animal whether they're very a slow animal like the like the like the slugs I wrote about mm. in the Antan tether you know I pictured everything as such a slow, slow life. There was no speed in it. Um, um, and, and, and the petrels, how, how petrified it must be to sort of cling life. Life is clung on the edge mm. of a cliff. Your baby is balanced on the edge of a cliff. Um, and, and we don't know, you know, how they mourn, what happens. You can only sort of try and imagine what it must be. And you, you try and put yourself in their place a little bit, but then step away again so you're, you're not intruding on the voice you're trying to give them. Mm. Um, I mean, I have had fun in some things, you know, Im imagining, even, even I suppose I want to give life to things. I don't see anything as inanimate or nothing, mm. even the little frog hoppers inside the frog spawn. You know, that's a whole universe that we don't mm. even know about. And I credit them with the same levels of intelligence that I have, or a horse has, or a whale has, or a dolphin has. Um, and I, I don't assume I'm cleverer than them at all. I assume they're cleverer than me because mm. they live and they survive where I would, I would be dead within a day or two if I had to live their life, you know? Mm. Um, I don't know if this is answering the question, at all in any kind of way and mm -hmm. it's just it's just freeing yourself to write about them taking you taking you out taking the human mm -hmm. out I think is is the best way to do it um yeah take yourself away completely and just give the whole stage of the the whole stage to them the whole page to them and just see what happens that's that's really that sounds like really great advice the, the kind of the idea that you you leave I was trying to get this is something else I try to do with my students it's like you're trying to avoid human expressions human emotions you're trying to avoid saying I you're trying to just imagine how it is to be the animal in that moment it's really really difficult in fact it's quite a challenge but it's worth doing and it's worth doing for, you know, on poetic grounds. I also think it's worth doing on, on ethical grounds because it prevents you from being that kind of, you know, anthropocentric, raging, egomaniac, <laughs> 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which, I mean, everyone, you know, you're guilty as anyone else, but the poem is a space. It allows you to not do that and not doing that for, you know, however long it takes to be in the space of the poem is actually a really salutary experience. It's good for you, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
yeah it, it takes you out of yourself because mm. you're often writing the I poem you know we personally have a lot we want to say about mm. ourselves you know if I want any material I've just got to look inside my own head yeah and it's there but but sometimes it's good to step away from that and and, and leave the I poem behind you know change the voice change the tense you know things like that as well just to just to take you out of yourself as well. So that's what nature poetry is really brilliant for as well. It's just taking the focus off yourself and reminding yourself of, of everything that's out there that isn't you. Mm. And the world's going on regardless of you, really. And, and your place as a human is way smaller than you think it is, I think. Yeah, yeah. That's, the, that's the sense that I have as well. I'm actually looking out of the window now. There are two sparrows who are having a massive scrap over the berries in the garden. They're like, <laughs> they do, they're, you know, with zero relevance to, to me or to Manny, who's looking at them like, what are you doing here? Animals are their own thing. They've got their own world, sort of kind of, which is quite yeah. brilliant, really, because I think when the human world makes you despair, thinking about how, of how little importance we are to nature in the great round is actually very comforting. <laughs> I mean, when I, when I write about my, uh, my beautiful horse, I tend to write about the way I intrude on his world mm. and the feelings I put upon him um, rather than the other way around, because ultimately I don't know what he thinks of me. I never will know what he really, mm. really thinks of me or whether or not he could walk away from me and be happy never to see me again. I don't know. Um, so, you know, I, I, when I write about him, it's not, you know, I know exactly what he's thinking because I don't. It's This is what I'm putting on him. I am dumping my humanity on this animal. And this, this, is, this is how I feel about that sort of thing as well. So that's another interesting way to write about nature as well is wondering mm. what you're dumping on it when yes. it possibly doesn't even acknowledge your existence half the time yeah yeah that's true manny's not acknowledging my existence he's looking at me like yeah exactly like this no get be yeah. gone <laughs> <laughs> oh so yeah i want to talk a bit about um i have this quote that i found ages ago when I was doing some research for teaching a class and it's the poet Kathleen Jamie talks about how nature writing has been colonized by white men, by old white men, I think was her phrase. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I was, then I tried to think, well, that can't possibly be true. I'm sure there are lots of women. I'm sure there are lots of black and minority ethnic women doing nature writing. I'm sure that that, but I couldn't think of any that have received popular attention within the last 10 years. I'm sure the work is being done, but it's certainly not being promoted. It's not given yeah. that critical space. Um, and I wonder how much you see your own poems as kind of deliberately pushing back against those different kinds of colonization. And I'm sort of bringing it up because a really disturbing trend in poetry that's been making me uncomfortable for a while now is the construction of working class voice and working class experience as being purely urban. Um, or if we're talking about rural life, then we're talking about it in the past. Um, it's something that, you know, our grandmothers and grandfathers did like years and years ago. Um, and you'd think that no poor people ever lived in the country. <laughs> yeah, I know and what it, you mean. Yeah. yeah. And it, there's a few, a couple of points I know are really passionate about this as well, like Wendy Pratt, mm. you know, 
you know, the rural working class. Um, I mean, yes, you know, there are, you know, the urban, I mean, the city working class and the rural, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i only saying it for, for the sake of trying to give mm -hmm. an example. We do exist in both those worlds. Yeah. It tends to get portrayed when, if, when someone wants to portray like a working class environment, it will be like a, a town or, you know, something like that. There won't be the countryside, the beautiful rolling countryside. Mm. Um, and then you, you watch a movie like, like we did the other night. And, um, and it was about this, it was about sort of gentle comedy. It was terrible, really. Um, and it was about this very, very, very upper class village somewhere. And every house was stunning and would cost you about £800,000 upwards to live in. And they all had wonderful Porsches and orchards and they had, you know, these massive dinner parties outside in the garden. And, you know, there were writers, some of them, and it was this wonderful, marvellous, marvellous world where everyone had a cut glass accent and wore sort of wax jackets. And yeah. it was portrayed very much like that. And then there were a couple of token working class sort of supposedly scally little characters in there. Um, it was, you know, there was a couple of girls and the way they were portrayed was horrific because it was like, here's the posh people, here's a bus stop, and there's two young girls sitting there, and they're both smoking the fag, and there's a bit of graffiti on the bus stop, um, which there certainly wouldn't be in a village like that. Um, and and they were going, F this, blind that, you know, and I just thought, what a cliche with their short skirts on. Is, is that what they think working class people are, you know? That's how they've portrayed them, and it, and it was it was this just this little film. It was called Tamara Drew, and it was dreadful. Um, sorry, the people in the film, but that's the kind of thing where you you're being portrayed. Mm. That was a bit of tokenism, just sort of that. They, they were the fun element that you were supposed to laugh at them, you know. Yeah. And they did all the bad things, sort of thing, you know. They were the sort of naughty element, and you think, well, if if you do see sort of programs like that it tends to be the sort of nice sanitized version of, of, of countryside mm -hmm. and when I'm going through all these wonderful villages I, I've done it ever since I was very little you go through these marvelous places and they are stunningly beautiful and mm -hmm. um, you know cottages that you know poor downtrodden workers would have lived in once farm labors etc and they're now these beautiful sort of desres amazing sort of houses that have completely mm. transformed who, who they belong to and what their history was sort of thing and you go through these wonderful places and I always look and you think ah oh, there it is round the back there's the council estate that's mm. where they took them in this place mm. and and I think there you are I see you I see you yeah. you're sort of tucked around the back um and it, it, it is a kind of untouched area really in, in, in literature and films a bit the rural working class I mean that's why without it was so important to have that section in the book we edited yes. because it's not represented not really um the expectation is it, it's a gritty cityscape or gritty factories or gritty estates it's not someone living in the middle of nowhere in a small mm. cottage or something and, and being working class so I think that's you know something where the balance needs to be uh, be be readdressed. 
which which Wendy is doing with her new magazine, spelt and everything. So if mm. anyone's got any poems that might fit there, that would be a good a good place to sort of maybe send them. Yeah. Um, so there are a few people trying to redress that balance. Um, I mean, I'm from the country. Mm. You know, there was two pig farms on my street and a maggot farm at the bottom. That's the working class country for yeah. you. That's where they stick the crap. Yeah. You know, we can we can smell that. We can dare each other to peek through the windows mm. at the maggot farm and get chased away. You know, that's <laughs> that's where we got stuck because we're poor. You know, um, so it's certainly we you know it's certainly we we had to travel to a different area to travel like I don't know half an hour on the bus you're in a completely different area it's transformed and there certainly isn't you know an area like that where all the filth and muck is you know it's on it's all sort of contained um and I did live in the city for a bit but now I'm, I'm back to rural I'm, I'm back to being rural working class because you know I, I can find beauty anywhere really when I lived in the city I found beauty anywhere um because I try really hard to find beauty everywhere, but I find it much better, you know, yeah. in, in, in the rural landscape, yeah. Definitely, agreed. And I think there's the idea, I think as well, that there's a sort of slightly insidious, that only the middle classes can appreciate the beauty of the countryside. It's like, if you're working class, you know, we'll stick you in a council estate next to the Magafal because you you can't you haven't got the finer feelings to appreciate all these rolling hills and these beautiful days all you want to do is sit in and watch tv or smoke or go to the pub that's all you want to do you working class person you can't possibly access beauty you don't have any you know pastoral feelings you don't have any lyric impulse towards nature no how dare you you know <laughs> I very often feel that that's the that's where it's going and there's this move to try and position the countryside as just this kind of leisure space I think they like to forget that work ever happened there the animals yeah. this is where your food is coming from idiot you know this is <laughs> where do you think your beef bourguignon is coming from what do you think is growing your fucking Maris Piper potatoes yeah somebody's just. out there plowing and shoveling us and mm -hmm. getting up at four or five a.m in the morning or working till god knows when and you know you know somebody's working always there's somebody working mm -hmm. yes you know behind the scenes and, and they need to be acknowledged and you need they need to be respected and you need to believe they find the world just as beautiful as everybody else they might not have been given the automatic tools to express it yeah. like i wasn't we have to earn those tools yes I think we have to try a bit harder to find those tools because they weren't an automatic given unless you were very, very lucky. Um, so, you know, we were there. You just have to look, definitely. Yeah, we are there. My mum says that as well. She's in, she's in Cambridge on the fans and she's in a council estate in Cambridge on the fans. So she's, you know, it's that amazing sense being poor and rural of of privilege to be somewhere so beautiful yeah um but at the same time of also being extremely cut off because all the resources are concentrated in the city yeah it, um, it's more difficult with with buses and transport and just the logistics of life are a lot more difficult mm -hmm. definitely yeah it's, it's important so if um could you send me the link to um, Wendy's uh, magazine, and I will, I will yeah. put the link in the show notes for anyone that wants to yeah. wants to submit access that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
Fantastic. So coming towards the end of the interview now, um, and not to end on a really angry note, um, <laughs> I don't want to talk about things that are just purely enrages. <laughs> so I kind of wanted to, I wanted to talk about the relationship between your poetry, your writing, and, and your myriad other forms of creative making, because you're illustrating and painting and drawing and sculpting and collaging and embroidering these fantastic mushrooms at the moment, which sound yeah. really ex <laughs> sound extremely exciting. And it's a wonderfully various practice um, with deep roots and many, many branches. So I'd be really interested to know if you feel that these different aspects of your creativity spring from the same source I and mean, if they have a kind of symbiotic relationship if they're kind of feeding off each other or if they're in some ways they're competing for energy and attention and do you ever feel sort of overwhelmed by the sheer profusion and intensity of your creativity because I feel exhausted by the sheer profusion and intensity of my creativity and mine is not even at a level that is the same as yours <laughs> You are a waterfall. I am like a trickle from the coffee dispenser. The waterfall as well. It is exhausting because I've always had a massive drive to empty my head. Mm. And I always wonder at what point my head will ever be empty. And I'm, I haven't even hit it yet. Um, so every day just feels like, a, you know, you have to empty your head of these ideas that are just so many ideas. I mean, life's amazing and everything makes me think about 25 other things, which makes me think about 25 other things. I can't even look at a pair of curtains without, you know, things just, just going on. So your head is full. I mean, my head's a separate entity, like that film, what's the film? I think it's a, um, I can't remember where it is, where the people, their heads come off and, and they float away and their heads are like these cerebral things and their bodies are like these base things that just carry on. Um, I can't remember which film it is. It might come to me later. Um, but I feel like that, like the heads is this separate thing and it just keeps thinking these things. And I just think, oh, it's, God, it's full, it's full, it's full. My head is full again. Mm. I've got to take some stuff out. And I have to take some stuff out and make some space and then almost instantly the space is filled again with something else but I think that it works in in very separate ways um obviously creativity is creativity no matter what you're doing fundamentally whether it's writing or drawing or whatever but the poetry takes all the intensity and the pain and the realism the poetry is all the knives and nails mm. and the, the noise and the rattling things and the injustice and the opinions. The poetry takes the brunt of that. That's where it goes. And I don't deliberately think I'm going to channel that there. It just seems to be that is the right medium mm. for removing that part of my head at that time. The art is just all about how beautiful things are, mm. the beauty of things, the pleasure of things, the beauty of colour, of pattern, of painting nature or painting people or painting animals. It's just purely pleasure, absolute pleasure. 
So I don't tend, I mean, I have once in a blue moon painted something that's, you know, dark, mm. but it's very, very rare that any darkness gets channeled into the art, you know. Um, and I think that a separate part of me goes into that. Um, I mean, there's a line in one of the poems in Be Feared where I say the garden is where I waste my tenderness. Mm because I love gardening too and all the love the overwhelming touching feelings that I have an urge to put on people which obviously I know I can't because everyone has boundaries and I know I can be very overwhelming and um, so I take my physical physicality and my feelings and I am overwhelming mm. and I put it into the gardening um, so that's another it's like pulling parts of yourself away and each of these um each of these brackets of art take a different part of me away and then obviously the embroideries they're something that comes when uh, I'm at the end of everything and I'm you know I'm very stressed and I'm very agitated and I just have an urge for the simple act of sewing mm. the in and out the repetition of the sewing, the act of sewing itself. I mean, yes, you can then sew pretty things or whatever, um, but the complexity of embroidery stitches, some of them are incredibly complex, mm. like the bullion knot and things like that. And I just repeat them. And that takes a lot of the stress out of myself. And I feel just emptied when I've sewn. So it's not so much about making the act of repetition is mm. beautiful in sewing. So that takes like another part of myself away. Um, so they they all they're all very very necessary. I couldn't choose one. He said you could only do one thing. I mean, if I had to, if my back was against the wall and I had to choose one, it would have to be poetry mm. because. I can absorb feelings of beauty. What I cannot keep absorbing is what comes out into the poems. That, yeah. that has to leave you or it become very toxic, I think, for you if you didn't have an outlet for those kind of emotions. So they're sort of all necessary, but it's kind of separate, which is, mm. which is strange. But I have to do up each of them at different times for different needs. Mm. They're, they're fulfilling, they're responding to different needs. I, I get that poetry gets the knives. I feel, yeah, that's yeah. All, the, all the stuff that you can't process any other way. It's mm -hmm. the only form. I think all language is kind of just the imperfect way of straining all of this shit. Um, lived experience and trauma, all language is like that, but poetry is the best and the closest we've come to being able to yeah. contain and, and articulate that. And I don't know why that is, but it it just it just is. I think poetry you, just does that. I mean, I don't know what the explanation. I'm sure somebody mm. could explain it br brilliantly, but I can't. It's just that is where all that stuff goes. Mm. And, and poetry is the perfect perfect bucket to throw those feelings in. It just really is. Yeah, yeah. it is. I mean, I went. I I tried to sort of because I did my PhD looking at sort of poetry and grief and trauma and. I spent a long time trying to investigate why poetry and why the kind of poetry that I do in particular. And I spent, you know, like four years trying to figure out why. And 
I, I still don't know why. <laughs> in fact, I somehow managed to, I, I know less and I'm less sure now than when I went in, but it does. And it's, I, I'm just happy that it is working. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. So, so to kind of, to, to finish off, I, I wanted to mention um, a little bit about um, neurodiversity, particularly as a kind of motor for um, creativity and the extent to which your late diagnosis has helped you to kind of contextualize and articulate some of what's just some of the stuff you've just been talking about that kind of the need to empty the head and to do to have this kind of extremely various extremely prolific practice mm -hmm. well I think in a nutshell really what I have said to you now before the diagnosis, I would not have been able to say mm. to you. I mean, it's been a couple of years now. Um, I think it's almost been a couple of years. I can't remember. I could look it up, but I forget because dates aren't so important. Mm. But I've spent a long time learning how to articulate what it is I am actually feeling mm. um and the way I've just spoken to you is the result of you know a couple of years of thinking you mm. know thinking 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 it's not just something that sort of popped out of my mouth now it's it's something that's you know it's given me permission to have these thoughts mm. whereas before I didn't think they were thoughts I had permission to have. I didn't have permission to access it or travel along these lines because that's not me. But then you get this diagnosis and, you know, your counsellors and your family, you know, your, 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 your pets even, mm. your mirror, they, they see a you that no one else sees. Mm. Um, because, you know, when I learned about cloaking, how we cloak mm. ourselves, I mean, that caused me at least a fortnight of extreme distress because I felt like I was being hit with feelings I didn't know I had mm. until I read that and knew that that's what I do. And it gave me permission to grieve and cry because I know when I look back, I've been doing that. Um, so there's a heck of a lot of processing going on now and looking back and, and thinking, you know, I, I did that. Um, and until somebody named it, I didn't know I was doing it, mm. which sounds silly. Like you say, surely you knew you were doing it. But it's no, because I didn't know it had a name. Yeah. I didn't know it was a thing um, until you start sort of looking um, and researching into yourself. And then being very honest with yourself, you know, and, and I thought oh, all the years I've tried to write and I've tried to use the correct punctuation, I've tried to use good grammar, I've tried to learn good grammar and learn punctuation, I've tried to put those building blocks in. And now I think, hell, they're not in, so fuck, excuse my French, don't care if they're not in, because it's me. The me who I am is the me who writes how she writes. 
so it has changed my writing massively in that I'm still the same person who loves words and loves a beautiful image or a metaphor or a simile and just has such a pure joy in her writing. That's still me, but it's me free mm-hmm. um, since then. Um, so I'm going to write poems that don't even have punctuation because that is how little it's meant to me in my life. And instead of feeling bad about that mm-hmm. or ashamed of that, oh, no, I'm <laughs> going to celebrate that. And no one's going to tell me I shouldn't. Um, and you think, you, you, yes, obviously, people love grammar. It, it's got its place, obviously. I'm not going to denigrate people who love grammar. But on the other hand, <laughs> the grammar police, you know, when you go on a website where people are mocking yeah. somebody's yeah. grammar, like an apostrophe in the wrong, oh my goodness, this is just terrible. And they all have a titter about it. And I think you don't know what that person's education's been. Mm-hmm. You don't know what that person's mental health issues are. You don't know what that person, how that person sees life. And if he's put an apostrophe in the wrong place or not used one, so what? That doesn't affect you. You use exactly the kind of apostrophe you want to use, but leave that person alone mm. until you've walked in that person's shoes. They're not a source of mockery. And I find that it crosses a line into mockery. You're mocking a human for a mistake you think they've made, whereas they might not think they've made it. Mm. So that is something that runs through my new work. Um, and some of it is very, I mean, I have, I have changed a lot of it since you last read the man. I have to send you this again because it is in a constant state of flux. It has to stop fluxing because it's going to have to go to the printers at some point. But it's this, it's this new broom. It's the new, it's the sweeping, it's the tools. And they, every time you just think, yes, that's, that's so much how I wanted to say it. I didn't even know, I didn't even know this a week ago. Um, I mean, one of the poems is an absolute praise poem to a funny little picture I saw. It was before lockdown, so it will have been a couple of years ago. I went to Miss Olmroyd. I've probably mispronounced it, near Hebden Bridge, and I went to a little reading there, and it was in a church hall, and there was this amazing picture of a pair of trowels, ceremonial trowels Mm. that had been used to lay some foundation stone or something. It was just a really funny little photo. Mm. And at the bottom, it just said the ceremonial trowels used black, but they put trowel apostrophe S. Mm. And I fell in love with that picture and no one was there to see. And I put my cheek against that picture and I told it I loved it. And it made me happy. Mm. And I just thought if I could take this picture home, I would and I would hang it on my wall because this is everything that someone might mock, but everything that is right to me mm-hmm. about being human and being who you are. And a mistake is only a mistake if someone believes it's one. Yeah. And who's, who's to say what a mistake is? Um, and I'm not saying we shouldn't try and teach. I mean, but, you know, I'm saying I'm going to say try and teach correct. What's correctness? What is correct? To, you know, everyone's so unique and different. And I just wrote this massive praise poem about this rogue apostrophe. Um, 
And I'm being interested to know how some of these poems go down, to be honest, for their absolute celebration mm. and rebellion against rules of, of any sort of kind. Um, so, um, you know, that's all happened since my diagnosis. Um, I mean, there's a lot of darker stuff where you have to keep trawling back through your life mm. and look at it again with a fresh pair of eyes. And understand mm -hmm. things and why why you did certain things, you know, and what the result of them were, you know, why you used to scream, why you used to sweep all the pots off the drain, or why you used to hammer the cupboards with a potato masher and leave great big divots in them, and why you used to make, you know, and, and why did you used to sit up and scream and and things like that, you know, there are there are darker sides to it, obviously. Um, but it's gonna take a long time to to bring all that to the fore and obviously, you know, touching on the, the breakdown of family relationships, the rejection of my family makes some kind of sense now. And um, the fact that they, <laughs> there's Manny, someone at the door. I like the last bark there when you said, have you stopped? Woof. Woof, yeah, no, I haven't. No, I've haven't. stopped. Yeah, I'm... one of one of my dogs, the little the, the little girl one, she's much more barky. And she does that, you'll say shh, 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 and then five seconds after the last mm. shush, woof. Yeah, exactly. Just, I'm, mm. I'm still here. I'm still here, Mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um so yeah. Just agreeing with you, I think. He's agreeing with you. Yeah, I think so. So so re-examining the, the breakdown of, of family, my relationship with my mother and, and things like that um, has been extremely difficult. Um, and I suppose, you know, I've, I've been the sort of the weird one, the funny one, all the stories they used to tell. I remember when Jane used to go to piano lessons and ignore the teacher for an hour and stare at a spot at the ceiling mm. and, and things like that. And they, you know, it was funny to them. But obviously, it's not really funny. It was just something that was missed um, completely um, for me. And, you know, I don't know if those relationships can ever be repaired because we're no longer in contact. I don't even know where they live. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's one of those impossible things. And if they couldn't accept me then, what would change now in a way? Um, so that is yet another thing that has to be looked at with these new eyes that I feel like I've been given. Um, and I think it's just it's just getting more open about it. It's taken a lot of courage to be more open about it because, you know, the first people I told said, no, you're not. You're not. You know, and it, it went very sort of bad and it put me off telling anybody because, mm. you know, there's not many people I have on Facebook who've met me in real life. And, you know, you, you see the sort of sanitize me. I've been, I've mm -hmm. become very good with the delete button, you know, and, if, and sometimes <laughs> I write these yeah. terrible statuses and I will delete them. Mm. Um, or I'll delete them after an hour or they make me feel uncomfortable. So I delete them. Um so they're seeing a sort of sanitized me. Um, they don't. They don't see the difficulties because you, you don't. You know you don't film them, put them up. You know the difficulties you're having and the difficulties in your relationships and, and the mm -hmm. everyday. You know you don't see those. Um, 
you know but you know this is hopefully the start of me becoming much more confident and open about it so so you know that that's the influence is, is the, it's the honesty it's given the, ad, the admission of it and the honesty and and then becomes a celebration too yeah. I think of it you know dark and light yeah, yeah. definitely and just the the sheer sort of exuberance and the beauty that you're able to find and that the fact that you have a totally unique perspective that you don't think like everybody else it's you know I mean Kidda my brother is also um autistic and he you know I don't know anyone with a mind like that <laughs> for good or ill you know he's the way he puts thoughts together, the way he forms thoughts, the way he maps meaning onto the world is completely different. And it's also completely different from me, who have my own issues, which um, are diplomatically referred to as issues. But it makes you who you are, and it's a place where poetry comes from, and it's also something that poetry interacts with and deals with, and it's a place you can put all that. Yes. Yeah it's it's kind of connected to that so it's it is it's simultaneously terrible and wonderful which at least it's not king boring <laughs> i don't have to resort to writing like terrible poems about where i went on my holiday to tuscany and the red wine i had as the sunset and that you know i'm not i'm not forced to doing that because that that to me would be would be death you know yeah I mean, it's, it's helping me celebrate the, the smallness of my life because it is quite a small mm. life. I do realise that, especially since the pandemic, um, where apart from obviously the, 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 the horror of the deaths and the worry and, and the, the, the terrible, terrible, you know, thing that it is, goes straight alongside of me never having been happier. Yeah. Because... I haven't had to go anywhere. The streets have been empty. Um, the shop, I mean, it's, it's becoming different now. It's becoming the same yeah. sort of stressful place that it was before. But, um, you know, I haven't had to worry about my son going anywhere because they haven't been allowed to go anywhere. So all the murder, death worries, the road crash worries that attach, the minute he leaves the house, I, I have to, I have to, absolutely sit in front of a wall of fear and pain and terror mm. which you might think I'm exaggerating but I'm not mm. until he sets foot back in the house I've been spared that um I've been spared worrying about me husband going taxi driving I don't have to stay awake till 5am for a click in the door mm. which says he's, he hasn't been bumped on the head and or crashed or something, you know, th all those things were removed and that's never happened for so long. I mean, 19 years I've been married and my son's 17 and that's a lot of years mm. to hold and not realise you are never getting the break from those relentless worries. So they were removed and I think that's freed up. It sounds awful because, you know, that there was a all these narratives on Facebook, you were either supposed to be massively creative, look what I'm doing, yeah. or you were supposed to be down on the people who were being creative. Yeah. Oh, they're, they're terrible. They're not real. They're not really feeling it because they're not um, 
totally tied up and, and unable to create. So there were two, seemed like there were two camps. You were damned if you did and you were damned if you didn't. And I didn't like that. I used to see it a lot on social media, you know, the person who's baking and putting up recipes. And I think, well, ultimately, they're just trying to survive in their own way as mm. well. You know, and if, if, if they are spurred on to create, to get fit, to bake, to paint a wall, I don't know, good for them. If you cannot do those things, then that's fine too. But it was the fact that these people were saying, you should be doing all this creating. And these people were saying, you shouldn't be doing all this creating. You should be suffering and unable to create. Create, don't create. And it became really strange. Mm. And I just thought, I'm checking out of both these narratives. And I am just going to be who I am and survive in my own way. Which was just to, just to keep doing and doing and doing because I was free for the first time in more than a decade of, of feelings I didn't know I was suffering from. Yeah. Um, so that had a big impact on the writing as well, I think, and on the art, which got progressively happier and happier, happier and happier mm. and brighter and more colourful. Um, I mean, I've written about it in a poem, you know, and to say that you are happier than you've ever been in the middle of something mm. so horrific Yes, I do wonder what people are going to think of me for saying that, you know, because that's going to make some people think I'm a terrible person. Mm. But I am very separate from my feelings mm. because I'm autistic. I am not going to feel things the same way. I have to try to feel things sometimes with regard mm. to other people, not myself. I can, you know, wax lyrical about myself till the cows <laughs> come home. Yeah call me selfish I don't know but you know when mm. when you're on you, you, I like to go through Facebook on my phone because I use predictive text to make me sound like a human being you know and and you have to make yourself care sometimes which which is difficult admissions but I'm not going to tell you everything's positive about me Mm. Yes, I do love. If I love, it's horrific as well. It's like, a, it's like an overwhelming, it's like throwing a kind of orange paint against a white wall. You know, that's what being loved by me is. It's just as terrifying, <laughs> really. So it touches mm. on things like that as well. Um, and, and I'm writing another collection after this as well, which is, is, is digging even deeper, I suppose, into, into those kinds of feelings mm. too. That's not awful. <laughs> it's not awful. It's, you know, I, I think that a lot of people listening are also going to be able to identify with that, with that, you know, people, everyone has their own things, like you were saying earlier, you know, and we don't know what's going on in someone else's life. We can't possibly know. People have all these judgments and yeah. all these kind of like prescriptive little lists of behavior and assumptions, but nobody knows what's going on. And the stuff that we, we like to think that we know what's going on because we can see a version of that person, but who puts the orange paint at the white wall stuff online? Who puts the terrible hours of accumulating darkness? No, nobody, or, you know, you do, and then people tell you they don't like it, so you take it away and you feel bad about it and you feel bad about yourself. But nobody is seeing that. It's only a 10th of the iceberg that's ever showing. And I think to have this discussion, it's, it's actually a really powerful and positive thing for other people. And it's wonderful that you are able to come and have this conversation with me. I feel, you know, really 
kind of privileged and like that it's actually important and it's important for other people too so thank you so much thank you thank you for having me on and listening it's been fantastic um Social Yet Distance would like to congratulate Punk Hostage Press, our West Coast friends. It's been nine years since they've started providing words to the world, and we just want to send them congratulations and a big thanks for all they've done for the world of poetry and outlaw uh, lifestyle. So um, in celebration, they've released three new books on the world uh, over the past few weeks. Nadia Bruce Rawlings, Driving in the Rain, Dan Denton's $100 a week motel and the long-awaited A Razor's Puro Parismo. Please take the time to pick these books up, support your local small press, and support your local artists and the arts. Be well, everybody. Happy anniversary, Punk Hostage. You're going to read some poems to read us out, yeah? Yes. Well, what should I do? Should I? Because I I've, I've read the um the be feared one um and then I had earmark three, but I didn't want to overread, so I don't know. I mean, should I just read them? And you three can is perfect. Them? Three is a perfect number of poems. Right. Right. Okay. So so this poem was written um about a beautiful um Methodist church. I say beautiful because they're usually incredibly unbeautiful, but I see the beauty of them. Um, I mean, I was raised a Methodist. I went to Sunday school every Sunday. I was a brownie. I was a guide. Um, so they have a place in my heart, you know, for good or for bad or for both. Um, so when I see one, I can immediately picture the plain white walls, the unadorned cross, you know, the swirly red carpet, the plain pews, you know, that it's very redolent for me. Um, and when when I moved to um, to our, our, our winter home in, in Ledgate in County Durham, um, which is a, an ex-mining village, and around the corner from our house was this Methodist chapel. And I thought, wow, maybe I should go. Maybe I should, you know, go to a service every now and then. Um, and it had been closed, it was it was closed, um, it had been closed down like most churches are these days, and, and now it's it's an, it's an office, it's been sold on and it's an office, so I'd never have the chance, but I used to try and peer through the windows and push the door, um, so I wrote this sort of poem, um, which was in, inspired by that situation, it's called Look at Me, Lingering Outside This Murdered Church, Open your lids, you cold smut, bitter thing. Undraw the blind that your plunged doom has set in the lead of your eyes. Too many years of chimneys licking their filth on your bricks. Nobody comes to pluck at your weeds. Look at the pair of us, our cabins unused. Methodists didn't build for beauty. Face like a mortuary slab, barren grim of harsh white walls. Let me in and I'll sing you some saints. 
God for me has not been enough. If I am to believe, daub me some vivid grief, gouge this wasted cave with a burning of sacred hearts. I will treat this bare render with my own crude litter of faith. You were laboured foundations up by your devout, by the skill of women and men they met and worshipped past the plain small wealth of the humble plate. Against your shelf, I hear the memory of Sunday school, feel the holy flattening of my arse after hours spent pressed to the hardwood seat, colouring between the lines of gentle Jesus, playing with the brittle thin of simple twisted palm. Thus we were made by a plain religion, I craved the gibber of rosaries, the veils, the fondant of communion gowns, the thurible swinging the fume of dedication up, the wailing visions of virgins smolt, the tabernacle with its myth of saviour's blood. My prayers will splatter your emptied crypt with a mess of devotion. My hymns are huge. I am an exorcism. I'm here to spew my devils at your altar's feet. Did not expect to find the slam and hasp of ailing Gothic doors. I make what I think is the requisite sign, poking my relic of belly and tip an empty cross to show that I already suffered and won. Open up, you barred and bolted thing. That's wonderful. That's that one. Um, and this next poem was inspired by a real life situation where um, last spring we fought a fire that had started mm. on the site here. Um, and had took a hold of one of the cabins and there was nobody on the site but us so me and my husband and my stepson and my son we went and fought the fire and it kind of inspired this poem self-portrait as an inferno i saw the birthing of a crazy phoenix saw it raise hackles of fire span bright wings of pain sear the night with a flock of sparks. It made a spear of embers and flew its pyre into the night, crackled with vicious feathers, spat its language of waste from an orange tongue. I looked square in its red cleft beak, saw a gizzard drunk with boiling doom, saw it arm the flu of its neck with bellyfuls of apocalypse. This blistered bird pegged talons to my cheeks and infiltrated every breath with filth. I've had uglier meat than you down my scalded throat. I crowed and beat my voice against the smouldered void. My pupils rolled wide as dark wheels. I wore the shape of flames upon my eyes. Doused greedy tinder beneath each blink. Met its furnace and found that I was not afraid. Mm. 
I've been through worse. I hissed into its scorching ear, then watered vessels full and bore it a cure of moon bucket pools to quench its rage, wore its shroud of vengeful smoke like my own defiant coat. I cursed it in its own kindled speech, grew hooded with dust, tasted reeking night and lapped the dry well of my parchy mouth, looked towards my aftermath of filthy hair and frowned the colour of fumes. I saw the mark of evil flight upon my skin, was alive through the night, had flickered with angels, made a soiled font of my face. I was an echo of waste built from tomorrow's cold remains. And the last one um, I'm going to read is one where I mentioned before about the, the menial minute of life can become a sort of metaphor for so much else. This is Mrs. Mother, hail. Mrs. Mother, Blessed art the window panes. Oh, keep from keep us from the lure of dust. Forgive this hankering for distant lanes. Give us brave archangels of morning sun. Mrs. Mother, hail the dull bulb of scratched spoons, for we must lift the humility of soup. Oh, deliver us from the sin of bread. Excuse the rough palm, its trespassing of skin. Mrs. Mother, oh, let us learn the hollow curse of curdled pans, the evil celibacy of the washing up, the everlasting weight of a dowager's hump. Lead us not into the drowning of knives. Mrs. Mother, oh, pity thy uncovered fruit. Pray for the sake of one small brown bruise, for the baptism of potatoes, for the hour of their laying bare, the mining of sprouted eyes. Mrs. Mother, oh, speak as one who stoops to crumbs, glory for the cumber of a used womb. Have mercy upon the quiet chapel of upturned cups. Suffer the bowl's foam, the smell of grass. Mrs. Mother, Oh, rise before such nights of bleak glass, light without end and light and light and light, and forever there shall be the sight of birds, invisible tastes of water. Amen. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much, Jane. Thank you, you're very welcome. <laughs> and thanks everybody for joining us. Yes, I hope um. you enjoy it. <laughs>
You know, in this crazy COVID world that we've created, everybody is always looking for ways to support themselves and their families. So that's what the Social Yet Distance uh, podcast and crew is really all about. We're built on the idea of supporting small businesses, the small press, and all the creators we can get our hands on. We're looking at ways that we can bring you more and better content that helps us to meet that goal. But meanwhile, redbubble.com and society6, the number six, society6.com forward slash emotional orphan at both. We'll get you to our art store and merchandise store where you can pick up all kind of goodies, um, anything from art to full-size furniture. So come visit us. Help support the podcast.